Programming Throwdown, Episode 117, Authentication with Aviad Mizrahi. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So, you know, when you get to your house, you know, or, or the place where you live, you have your key, you kind of turn it in the lock, and you get in. And if someone else has a different key, or if they don't show up with a key, they can't get into your house. And this seems pretty straightforward, right? And and also, you know, if you give your key to somebody else, they can they can get into your house, right? So so authentication sort of in the real world makes a ton of sense, right? But authentication over the internet, where you know you're sending this information to all these different computers, so it could get to its destination, that seems pretty wild, and it seems pretty unclear, like how that can actually work and how that can be safe. And so it's a really interesting topic. I'm really fascinated by it. And um, we have an expert. We have Aviad Mizrahi on the show, who's the CTO of FrontEgg, to kind of dive really deep into this and talk about authentication, how it actually works. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Aviad. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Cool. So yeah, before we kind of really dive deep on the technical stuff, it'd be really great to hear you know, kind of your background and you know your kind of experiences and what kind of path you took to get you where you are now working on uh, FrontEgg, which is a you know kind of platform that handles authentication and a bunch of other things. But but what's kind of your background in computer science? Yeah, sure. So I've been coding like professionally for the last twenty years. Uh, been working on really exciting projects, and you know. With the era of everything moving to the web, like I shifted my my expertise. I started coding, like as I said, professionally when I was twenty, just out of the army in Israel. Started working my way up with C plus plus and and .NET, which was really hot these days. But around, I would say five to eight years, where like everything shifted around the web. And products start evolving. We saw like a lot of the flows really becoming the same. So I had, I was working on a few like really interesting projects, both developer, R and D leader, architect, R and D manager. Actually, the last two years before founding Frontech with my co-founder Sagi. Uh, we met at Checkpoint, which is one of the uh, Israeli largest cybersecurity companies. Uh, and we had the privilege of leading a platform for SaaS application, basically founding a platform for SaaS application and leading it. And then when it hit us that all the things that we had to develop up until that point are pretty repetitive. So we we will touch on authentication in a bit, but... You develop authentication, the same flows all over again, the same multi-factor, the same security policies, the same user management invite, the same session timeouts, okay? And that's only like the tip of the iceberg because you have to develop everything in a self-serve mode. And basically, everything is being very repetitive in today's world. And this is pretty much the reason that around two years ago, before the COVID hit us, 
we founded Frontag, which our mission is basically to fight this repetitive, to give back the power to developer to focus on what really matters and to provide our expertise around everything that is very much like it's the core of the product, but it's, it's actually not the core of the product. It's something that you must have, but it actually, it's not the reason that you founded the company for. So this is, this is a front end. Uh, we can elaborate like later on, on what exactly we're doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a really good point. I mean, very few people want to dedicate a ton of time and energy really perfecting their login, right? The login is ultimately to identify and secure you know, people's identity and information so that then you can provide them some kind of service, right? Which is, that's the part that most companies are really interested in. But, but then they feel really compelled to pay a lot of attention to it because if someone can compromise it, I mean, we saw this with Target and we saw this with even the, I think Equifax or one of the, you know, the, the people who handle the report of, of uh, your credit report and so, you know, so many of these things get hacked and a lot of it is through the, you know, being able to, to get, um, you know, authenticated as, as basically anybody you want and then taking all the data. Um, you don't hear as much about like SQL injection and these kind of attacks. I mean, most of the attacks that, and I'm not a cybersecurity expert by any means, but most of the attacks that at least I see in the news are things where the authentication system has been compromised. You know, I think that that it's something extremely, extremely important, but also something that's not central to sort of the core mission of many companies. And so it seems like a great thing to build, you know, kind of a service around. Um, and, and also there's just so many different intricacies to it. There's, you know, social login, there's login through a phone number, there's, you know, email and password, and then you have to verify the email. And there's so many different steps to that flow. And, and people could get hung up on every single step. So there needs to be a way to kind of, you know, kick any of those steps, you know, send another email, send another text, um, you know, eventually time somebody out, right? All of that stuff is just adds so much complexity to the developer experience. So you, you, touch, you touch the exact point of why this is not as simple as, as you may think. So I, I had the privilege of, uh, you know, managing a lot of very talented R&D developers over the years. And when you ask, like, you know, developers can be a little bit of show-offs. And when you ask them, okay, uh, we want to build a new product. Obviously, a new product always starts with the sign-up and the login. They say, yeah, this is very easy. We do email. We do a password. We give them a reset password link. And yeah, and we can close it. I would say it would take me around, around a week. But then when you dig in a little bit like deeper, you start considering how do I send the passwords over? Uh, where do I keep them? How do I keep them? Uh, how do I maintain these tokens? How do I maintain these email templates? Okay. What kind of MFA method should I choose? Do we go with TOTPs? Do we go with SMS? Do we go with emails? Like in Checkpoint, one of the things the security research team did was proving that SMS is like hijackable in no time. And then you, okay, so maybe SMS is not a better. So let's let's dive in and start identifying which 
which MFA method should we use now today with the rise of Fido keys? Uh, Fido is like the new the new thing to 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 adapt. And then which kind of SSO would you choose? How do you handle OAuth flow? How do you handle SAML flows? How do you handle OpenID Connect flows? How do you audit all of this for the compliance and regulations? Uh, how do you handle multi-tenancy? Uh, how do you handle security policies? And then it, it becomes like this project that, you know, it started with, with the developers saying, yeah, it's going to take me a week. And then you find yourself three months later in a tech debt that you, you, you started and then you don't know when it's going gonna, it's gonna to be finished. And then, yeah, this is the reason I, I think that like authentication has become a little bit of, you know, there are great companies out there that are doing that. And it's become a little bit of commodity because like the simple stuff is simple to solve. And today, a lot of companies are, are, are working around authentication. There are nice open sources around it. And, and you, you really need to know your way when you're choosing these tools to see what exactly is the different, which method sh- sh- do you want to go with and, and to provide the perfect user experience for your customers. Because today, the user experience is, not, is, is as important as the security aspect of, uh, of the product. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I've seen, I think it was LinkedIn posted that basically every step someone has to take to create a LinkedIn account, every single step churns something like 10 or 20% of the of the of the people. Now, like maybe, you know, at least for the first step, maybe a lot of those are bots, right? But but I mean at some point you get to like, yeah, where a lot of real people say, Oh, well, if I have to give my phone number and I have to give it again. And then they have to text me and I have to answer the text. Like the more of these steps you have, the the fewer people are going to be on your platform. But at the same time, you know, you need to have a platform that's secure. Um, otherwise, then once it's compromised, it's very hard to build the brand back. Yeah, we should, we should unpack a lot of this. So well, I definitely want to put a bookmark in MFA and multi-factor authentication. We should talk about that. But first, let's just talk about when someone types a password on the internet, how does that password get to the server without somebody just seeing it along the way and and then just having your login information? You know, like like how does how does that work? How do you basically give your keys to a hundred other computers without someone just being able to get into your house? Yeah. So if we touch in on that, so there there are several ways to let's talk about the restful. Flow. So there are two main methods to send data to the server. So it's either a query param, or if you are doing a post, it's through a post body. So the query param, not the good way to go with. Basically, two reasons here: like URLs are going, and you know there there are being transients along the way, and they are being cached, which is really really bad. Yeah, just just to just to give a, a bit more background here. So the query param is, you know, when you type a URL into your browser, sometimes you'll see this. You'll see like question mark, you know, item equals thirteen or question mark foo equals bar, right? And that what that is is actually it's sending, you know, in addition to the URL like google.com, that af- anything after that question mark, you know, it goes to the same URL, but it's like extra data. So you could say, you know, mywebsite.com slash login you know, question mark 
you know, a whole bunch of things, A equals B, C equals D, E equals F. Just I think they're separated by commas or something. And then and then it'll still go to login, the login, you know, um endpoint, but it'll get all of those things, those query parameters. The problem is everyone on the way can just see all of those in plain text. Yeah, that's that's one problem. And the second problem is that the browsers are maintaining our history. So that means that every URL that you are pushing basically is being sent, saved on histories, especially if, if you are typing that on the, on the, on the browser, on the browser uh, bar. So that's, that means it's automatically saved on the cache of the, of the browser. And that's, yep. that's really bad. So there, I, I would say that there are two major points that you want to pay attention to when you're sending passwords to the internet. So first of all, I would recommend always using post body. Okay. Posts normally are not cached. This is good. So always use a post body and always make sure that you're when you are sending data to your uh, endpoint, it's an HTTPS SSL with a legit, legitimate certificate, because that means that Unless you have, uh, you you are less prompt for many intermediate attacks with SSL uh, uh, certificates. So, if you if you have to send passwords to the through the internet, passbody and SSL is mandatory. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a crack at this, and then you definitely fill in the gaps here because I'm sure I'm going to I'm going to mess this up. But I think the way SSL works is the browser itself has some type of of key or something like that from a bunch of 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 registrars and so when you download the browser you get sort of ways to encrypt data and then when you go to an https site the browser you know encrypts the data and sends it to the server and then the server is able to you know using these same services like let's encrypt or these other ones is able to you know decrypt that data and I think it has something to do with the fact that the you downloaded the browser and the browser has some special information. That's what allows you to uh, you know, encrypt something without having to basically ask for permission over the internet, which you know, there's sort of a chicken and an egg there, right? And so this the HTTPS kind of gets around that through the browser. Is that did I get that right? Yeah, that's correct. So the the browser is responsible for the encryption and the endpoint, which is basically the server is responsible for the SSL termination, which basically means get an encrypted data, decrypt it, make sure that it's valid and basically handle it. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like someone, you know, to use the key analogy, it's kind of like, you know, you let someone into your house. This is the browser that you downloaded. You let someone into your house they give you like a special encryption tool, right? And then now if you want to send a key to somebody through the mail or something like that, you would somehow like the letter, the envelope, you know, needs that tool to open. And so, you know, you might give a letter to the postman who gives it to someone else, who gives it to someone else, but none of them have that tool that that person came into your house and gave you. And so they can't open that letter, even though they have it. And so then eventually it gets to the server. The server can, can you know, also talk to that person who went into your house and gave you the tool and the server can, can decrypt it 
And so in this way, um, you know, even though you're going over the internet and so many people are seeing your password, they're seeing an encrypted version of it that they can't, they can't untangle. That's, that's 100% correct. So yeah, the use of private, pr private public keys, asymmetric encryption along the internet basically changed the way that we are processing data, makes it much more uh, trustable, even along with, with uh, you know, we'll touch base a little bit on the way that we are handling uh, authentication and what are the methods. Do we use session-based? Do we use JWTs? But like jumping a few minutes before that, when we, when we are signing authentication keys, normally that's, that's the way that we are doing it, we're signing with some private key that only the server has, and we are giving the public key to everyone just so they can verify the the authenticity of of this server. Cool, that makes sense. Yeah, so so let's unpack some more of this. So, um, you know, we talked about you talked about MFA multi factor authentication. What is that all about? Yeah, so. Passwords are easily hackable, okay? So most of us do not get our browsers advisors on breach passwords. or So we are using the same password for all of the websites. So if password, and then basically that means that we are trusting the server or the endpoint or the service that we are using to maintain our password securely. Most of them do, okay, but some of them, you just mentioned SQL injection, some of them do not store our password securely. And storing it securely means at least hashing and salting them on the database so they are not easily, I would say, reversely engineered. So if the service that we're using and we send our password to didn't maintain it, properly, that means that it's easily hackable. And once one service is hacked, that means that if we reuse the same password all over again on the other services, for example, our banking account, our LinkedIn account, our Facebook account, our Twitter account, etc., etc., that means that the attacker can potentially go and hack all the other accounts. By by you know by a very simple operation by going on a on a breach passwords uh, database and you know going and trying, so this is where MFA comes into place. Where basically there is another level of authentication that you have to prove that you are actually the originator of the request by proving another we call it possession on the authenticity. So for example. I tried, I onboarded MFA on my account and let's say that my password was breached. So we have an attacker on the other hand who is trying to log in to my bank, okay? So he has my email and he has my password and he types it in and they are correct. But now he is facing another level of challenge where he have to, to prove that uh, a code which is being sent, let's say, in, you take the easy but not secure way of SMS. So now he has to type an SMS uh, number that is sent to my phone. Okay. So first of all, I got this SMS. I immediately know that someone is trying to log in to my account and I'm probably going to change my password after that. 
but that blocks the attacker from actually logging into my account because I have another level of authentication that needs to prove that basically who is trying to log in is actually me. So that we have several methods of multi-factor authentication. I mentioned the TOTP, which is one of the most popular today before the Fido's came into place. TOTP basically means use of either Google Authenticator or Microsoft Authenticator. There are tons of Authenticator, Duo, there are tons of Authenticator apps available for download from any app, from any app store. And the idea is that you are being assigned with a, with a number, six digits number for 30 seconds. It's based on a seed. And the idea is that it's based on the same seed that is running on the server, okay, based on times. And right after the authentication, you have to type in another number. A number that is available only from your authenticator application. So that's a TOTP. There are several other methods such as SMS, which is the same sending an SMS to the phone number that you that you signed up with. You just mentioned that you know phone numbers are not information that we likely want to share with the services that we are using. Uh, we feel more comfortable by installing an app on our device and not sharing the phone number with the, the services. This is why SMS uh, is not that popular and it's easily hackable. Suggest so like just go into your favorite search engine and search for uh, SMS hijacking and, uh, and SMS MFA. Yeah, I think the uh, the one I remember, and I'm sure there's a ton of them, but the one I remember was when Jack Dorsey, who is the CEO of Twitter, correct me, you know, feel free to look up the article, but I think what happened is somebody called Verizon and said that they needed to transfer a number. And they were actually able to, with very little proof, transfer Jack Dorsey's personal cell phone to their cell phone. So they had Jack Dorsey's phone number. Um, and so I'm assuming they started just getting calls. People who are trying to call the CEO of Twitter were now calling this random person. And and what they did with that is they kicked into the MFA. They tried to log in as Jack. And then when they couldn't, they said, oh, I forgot my password. You know, send me a text with like a reset link. And so, you know, Twitter did that. They clicked the link, they changed the password. And now they have the CEO of Twitter's, you know, Twitter account. And um, and so they posted all these things. I don't remember what they posted. I'm sure it was terrible. Uh, or I think they asked for Bitcoin or something. I don't remember. But but uh, but yeah, so that you can see how that's a massive, massive problem. And so with SMS, you're relying on the phone company being able to secure your phone number. And it hasn't been that good about that. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, when, when we are discussing MFA and when, when we are discussing security and authentication and authorization, there is a constant constant tension between product and security, right? So security, the security guys wants everything to be as secure as possible. Uh, no one can log in, no one can sign up without verifying their email address. MFA, yeah, they, they must use a Google Authenticator, etc., etc. But, you know, sometimes product defines uh, by... The, the security level, because I mean, I, 
I'll give you a, an example with my mother, which is a very technologist uh, person, but I couldn't get her to install an authenticator app on her phone. She's, she feels much more easy with SMS, uh, although I explained several times that SMS is not good for her. Uh, but even, you know, the bank uh, account requires her SMS because they say, well, with the type of people that are going into the bank, you cannot expect everyone to know what an authenticator app is. So you have to do some compromises in order, you know, to for the product to be usable. So, you know, that's, that's always the tension uh, with MFA. MFA is just the beginning of it, you know. Uh, session timeouts is just another sample of it. There's always a tension between product guys and security guys and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Now it's more towards the security. Today with PLGs, for example, I just mentioned it. With PLGs, you are not required to verify your email anymore. You sign up, you type in your password. I can sign up as JSON, okay, with your email. You'll get an email, but I'll be able to log in because I tapped in my password. Obviously, after three days, if I didn't verify my account, my account will be deleted by, but that's, you just mentioned with the LinkedIn research, there is constant tension on providing like the best user experience and sometimes security is just another hassle on the way. So this is, this is something that we are constantly facing from the product side and from the security side. Yeah, you know, actually, it just hit me, you know, when you when you're saying it. Yeah. So, you know, I have an email that's totally available. Anyone can get can get access to it. And so because of that and and and, and show, you know, I, I tend to get a lot of strange emails. And yeah, I have gotten emails that were you know, kind of effectively from from products I've never used. But but, you know, they 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 sounded like they knew me. And yeah, I think what's going on there is, yeah, people are using my email and then logging into some type of product, and then they're able to do things while they're unverified. Of course, I never verify. That would be crazy. But like, I, you know, I get the email asking me to verify, and then yeah, it's a really good point. You know, and I never really connected all the dots. But but yeah, when, until you're verified, you know, many products will let you do things, but but maybe not everything. And 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 there's very good reason for that because yeah, there's definitely people who have used my email address, and I guess done as much as they could uh, unverified before um, uh, before maybe their, their accounts finally get banned or I don't know what happens. Yeah, there, there, I think there is a main reason why email verification today with the PLG world, email verification is not that, you know, that popular. So first of all, yeah, we, we seen, we seen it ourselves. There was a drop of conversions when we requested people to verify their email address, okay? Uh, and there are tons of researchers about it. But even if we do ask them to verify their email, with, with so many services around, you know, temp email and that kind of stuff, you never know who the user really is because everyone can go on the internet, type in 10-minute email, temp email address, they can set up a, an email address for one day, okay? They can work with that email address for one day and experiment any product. So it's not that it's on the contrary of security, but you know, email verification is not 
that mandatory in the PLG world. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess it only becomes an issue if then I wanted to use that service and someone else is already using it with my email address. And I guess at that point, I'd have to call in or something like that. But So this is exactly where single sign-on steps into the play. Because let's say that someone is using your, I don't know, your Gmail address or, or, or uh, you know, any other, any other Outlook address. So this is where they, they will never be able to log in with your credential through SSO because you are the only one that can log in through the address and SSO. Yeah. Can you dive into that? I actually don't know what SSO is. I've heard the name, but I don't know much about it. Can you, can you dive into that? Yeah, sure. So SSO stands for single sign-on uh, and there are several uh, methods of single sign-on where OAuth is by far the most popular one. We refer to a social initiated login and that goes all the way through much more complex protocols like another subset of OAuth, which is OpenID Connect. And obviously, SAML, which is, uh, we call it the enterprise uh, single sign-on. And the idea of single sign-on stands for you have one identity, okay? And that can be your Google identity, your Microsoft identity, your GitHub identity, or your Okta identity, okay? As an, as an enterprise organization. And on each product that you are using or on each service that you are using, you should be able to log in with the same identity. And that, that's good for several reasons. So for, first, first of all, the, set, the first reason is that you have one password to remember, one MFA to set up, okay? And all the other services are basically relying on the same identity provider. So it stands for you have one identity provider, if you are doing login with Google, Google is your identity provider. If you are doing login with Microsoft, Microsoft is the identity provider. And basically you can see every application, what scopes it is using for your service, etc. And so that's from the, the identity standpoint. And from the organization standpoint, if we're taking one step further for protocols like SAML and organizational single sign-on, the IT administrator of the account can basically, once you decide to leave the organization, so it's very popular in the B2B applications. Once you leave the organization, it, the IT administrator uh, of the organization needs to delete you from one repository, and that's the identity provider repository, whether it's G Suite uh, or uh, Azure AD or Okta, they delete you once, and then you lose basically access to all of the other products you logged into as the employee of this organization. That's basically the whole idea around single sign-on and, and enterprise single sign-on, which basically gives the power back to the IT administrator and to the identity provider to, to maintain all, all of the authentication flows. Got it. Okay. I think I get it. So, so the idea is effectively from a developer standpoint, it's kind of a, it's kind of a handoff type thing where someone uh, types in a password. I don't know if you do it on the client side or on the server side, but, but you, you get someone's, actually you probably don't get someone's password, but you, but you, you get, you somehow are able to show somebody content from Google and Google asks them for the password. And then Google tells you, 
uh, yeah, this person, this person is good to go. And then you trust that Google's done the right thing. And so once Google tells you this person's logged in and they are, they are this email address, then they're in at that point. Correct. So the way it actually works is that you are clicking, so we can we can dive dive into that. You click on the login with, for, let's take Google for example. You click on the login with Google button on the application that you are trying to go into. Then you are being redirected to the Google authentication. You are being taken out of the application. Okay, so you're being redirected. Uh, with the client ID of the of the application which asked for this uh, identity, but you are being redirected to Google. You type your password in Google, okay, not in the application. The application has no idea what is your password. It knows only your email. And then basically, once you are redirected back to the application, the application is doing some kind of a token exchange with Google to get your actual identity with, and that would be the email and most, most of the times your entire profile. And then basically that means that you are logged in to this application using Google, okay? So that means still the application is the one that generates the authentication token for you, but the identity provider that is being responsible to providing the multi-factor authentication for you, or the identity provider that is being responsible for the password maintenance is Google, not the application. Today's sponsor for Programming Throwdown is SignalWire. SignalWire is a pretty awesome company that allows developers to use multiple languages to call their APIs and deliver low latency video and audio technology. So imagine if you're building an application or a website and you want to host an interactive event like a charity event that they supported for the American Cancer Society where they're able to have multiple rooms, people interacting in the rooms, uh, like a video conference call, but like way more tailored to uh, your specifications and so much more flexibility and the APIs that enable you to do that. They're already being used by large TV studios, film companies, Fortune 500. These are all things that are uh, definitely been battle-tested. And today, we are happy to have them as a sponsor of Programming Throwdown. Yeah, SignalWire provides expert support from the real OGs of software-defined telecom. These are the original geeks of that technology. <laughs> SignalWire's complete unified platform for integrating video as well as voice and messaging capabilities into any app. You could try it today at signalwire.com and use code THROWDOWN for $25 in developer credit. So you go to signalwire.com and use the code THROWDOWN at signalwire.com today to receive $25 in developer credit. Now back to our episode. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think people are starting to, at least I'm starting to understand now why you need you need session tokens, which is something we should talk about. You talked about session uh, timeout. and And so all of this that we're talking about there's a lot of steps to this, a lot of complexity. There's reaching out to Google and coming back. And so you don't want to do this every single time someone wants to access anything on your website. And so that's where the session token comes in. So you basically, and please fill in the gap here, but I think basically the way it works is once you've all agreed on something, then you can create this, this token, which is good enough. Like once you have this session token, that's all you need to be authenticated. 
And so in that sense, it's kind of vulnerable, right? Like if I can go to your computer and get on your browser and start copying the session tokens out of there, then I can be you, right? And so because it's insecure, you know, they, they, it has a timeout. So maybe it only lasts for a day. So at most I can masquerade, if I stole your laptop or something, at most I can masquerade as you for a day. Well, I guess if I stole the laptop, that's different. If I, if I somehow just stole the browser, the browser cookies from your laptop, then I could masquerade as you for a day, but eventually that session token will expire. And so you'll have to go through this process again of authenticating. And at that point, at that point, then then you know you wouldn't be able to to be as that person. Is that is that kind of how the session stuff works? Yeah, so that's that's correct. So the most uh, there's the always top ten, which is the best security practices for you. You can take the best security practices from there uh, of how to maintain the best security for your uh, website. And XSS, I don't remember the exact number, but it, I, I believe it's number three. Uh, we can check it out, but XSS, you know, can be easy, but normally what you can do with XSS, what you want to do with XSS, and XSS stands for uh, cross-site scripting, you want to hijack your victim's uh, access token. And this is why, you know, whenever whenever I speak with someone about how to maintain access tokens, uh, how to how to create like the most secure authentication mechanism around it. Uh, XSS always comes into play as you don't want to play around XSS. So I, I've seen a lot of developers uh, and they are usually the same developers that say, uh, yeah, I can do it in a week that would keep the access tokens on the local storage. And that's like rule number one of do's and don't do's. That's the rule number one in the don'ts. <laughs> yeah, because that means that every attacker which gets access to your uh, application can just hijack your local storage, gets the access token, and then yeah, totally it can be you. So usually there there are several guidelines around it, but the idea is to have store the access tokens in memory for the application. So they are less likely to be stolen and store the, so normally JWTs are made of access tokens and refresh tokens. So normally for web application or for modern web application, what we recommend is storing, storing the refresh tokens uh, as HTTP only cookies. So HTTP only cookies are cookies that cannot be accessible to any JavaScript which makes it very hard for the attacker to get them because the browser protects them and do not give access to potential attackers. And then for protecting through a course, which is cross-original protection through the other part of, uh, of the refresh tokens. That usually makes up a, a legitimate uh, protection for any web application and that means that your access token is likely to be safe on the application. And and yeah, I did mention JWTs. So JWTs is one of the most common ways of maintaining tokens today. So up until a few years ago, we used what we just called session tokens. 
So there is a central token repository, which was a single point of failure, and everyone needed to basically talk with in order to validate token. But today with the rise of microservices and the asymmetric encryptions, the world has shifted around to JSON web tokens, which is the JWTs, which basically means that you get a JSON, which is normally the user data, you sign it using a private key and you give the public key to any microservice around it. And then basically you take off the responsibility from the from this central token repository and you provide the services with the way of validating the request. And that basically, you know, same as ours, pretty much changed the world of integration between companies because once you can shift the same authorization header and the same JWT token between different services, you can shift it between different applications that can verify the same JWT token without any specific integration, okay? Just by using a public key. And that's, that's the, I, I think that's really changed the world of how we, do, how we are doing, you know, integrations between applications and teams by simply sharing public keys. Uh, and that's, that's a major change in the authentication world. Yeah, that makes sense. What is the difference between a session token and a refresh token? Like, why does the session token exist? Why not just have one token? So the idea is that, you know, you want to you wanna maintain the session tokens as short as possible and the refresh tokens as long as possible because session tokens basically give you or give the attacker access to your account. They can do actions on behalf of uh, the victims and that's why you want to keep an extra level of basically extra level of protection by just having the access tokens as short one i don't know you said a day i think it's too much uh, an hour or something i just made that up don't take that as technical advice please <laughs> no 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 <laughs> Now, uh, but, you know, keeping them as short as possible and the refresh tokens are the one that are being used all the time to maintain the, the, the session active. And, you know, with the method I just, you know, we just discussed, the access tokens live in memory. You're not saving them on any, uh, on any local storage or something like that. That means that once you hit a page refresh, your session is gone. So the, the token is gone. So you have to refresh it in order to keep the session alive. And you don't want the user to re-authenticate every time he's doing a page refresh. And the refresh token takes care of the session longevity. Okay. So that's that's the general idea of refresh tokens. I guess the thing I don't understand is how is the refresh token more secure? Like what's to stop someone from just stealing the refresh token instead of stealing the session token? So there are two, two reasons here. First of all, on the website, okay, on the single page application side, what we normally suggest is having the refresh token as part of an HTTP-only cookie. Okay, so HTTP-only cookie cannot be stolen through an XSS. Okay, they are usually protected. And if you add a, a course mechanism, so you're protected with course as well. So they cannot be stolen. 
And on the backend side for OAuth flows, okay, so refresh tokens basically are being stored on the backend side, which is less likely to be stolen from any Redis or a local database around there. Oh, I think I get it. So, so I'm going to say it a little differently. Tell me if if I understand it. I'm paraphrasing, or if I don't understand it. So, so the refresh token, you kind of pass that around once when you log in, and then after that, the server is the only person who has it, and so the attacker would have to grab it right when you're logging in, which is hard to do. And so, and so now the server has the refresh token, not you. And so, and so that now it can't be stolen. Did, did I get that right or no? Yeah, that's part of it. So first of all, this, the the server stores it, and yeah, the you get it only when you get the access token. So you get a pair. You get the access token and the refresh token, and the only way to get a new access token is by using the refresh token, which is being stored down there in the server. And if you are working on a on a browser side, so if you chose to put the refresh token as part of your application as an HTTP only cookie or something like that, it cannot be stolen as well because if you're using the, the, the best practices around course, because it will only be sent to your endpoint for the refresh token purposes. So, so I guess if you have the refresh token as an HTTP only cookie, then is the session token like adding any value or is it just like a legacy thing at that point? No, 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 obviously. You don't want to refresh the token on every action, okay? So as I just mentioned, usually the re- the refresh token will be sent only to the refresh endpoint, okay? And you'll get a new access token. The, the old access token will be in, uh, invalidated and the new access token will be generated. And as I mentioned, the access token should be used around your, I don't know, tens of microservices, around tens of different services that you are using and sometimes with different applications that you are using. And the idea is that access tokens are signed so every microservice can basically uh, validate them. And yeah, the idea of access tokens is here to stay because the they provide an easy way for microservices to validate them with the lack of API gateways or something like that. Now I get it. Now I get it. So basically, if you didn't have access tokens, you would have to go to Google every single request. Like you would, you would show up with, with a refresh token every time someone visited any part of your page. You'd have to go back to Google and say, hey, is this person legit? Is this person legit? And so that, that round, that's just too, it's just too expensive to keep doing that. And so the session token saves you from having to keep going to the SSO provider all the time. And you can define how long that duration is. And then at, once that expires, then you go back to, to Google or whoever and say, hey, I need another one of these tokens. That's correct. Cool. Wow. Yeah. I think uh, I think we we covered a ton of really really good information here. So we covered encryption. We covered you know tokens. We covered login. Yeah. I think this has been really really great. I, I a lot of these questions honestly are just come straight from the heart. I mean, they're things I've always wondered, and and you had um, have amazing answers. So thank you so much. I actually I'm a little bit exhausted questions here. I mean, I actually feel like I have a 360 view. And one of the things too is I I think I'm now in a state of conscious ignorance as opposed to unconscious ignorance where I realize that 
there's absolutely no circumstance by which I'm going to build my own authentication <laughs> if I ever made a product. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, this world is going much more deeper than we just covered. And it's amazing that, you know, you know, attackers are getting smarter uh, every day. The authentications and mechanism needs to keep up with that. So this is why we keep talking about uh, federations and SSOs and, and, and multi-factor and different types of multi-factor. And how do you recover your MFA device? How do you store these recovery codes? You know, there are so many stuff around this that you kind of, you know, when I just started, I, I, I was a bit lost on the stuff that we had to cover in order to make uh, like, you know, a decent solution. And that's, that's so many uh, stuff like I'm talking about five, six years ago, so many stuff to take care of. And yeah, that's, that's the reason that I would never, you know, now with Frontec it's easy, but like even on my next uh, journey, I would never build uh, this stuff alone again. Although it's, it's kind of fun because that's, that's what we do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, I guess I, I, there is a caveat. Yeah, I mean, if, if the next project I work on was an authentication project, that'd be totally different. And so it, it, I think it's fascinating, but, but I also think that, yeah, if, if your goal is to, I don't know, build a taxi app or something like that, definitely don't, uh, don't say I can have authentication done in a week. Uh, unless you're unless you're 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 using a third party library, then maybe you can get it done in a week. So actually, let's dive a little bit into that. So tell us a bit about FrontEgg and um, you know how it helps with authentication and, and other sort of you know kind of services that y'all provide and how that works. Sure. So as I mentioned, FrontEgg is a two years old startup, and when we founded the company, the idea was to allow developers to basically reuse services such as authentication, some other stuff that we are doing, so they don't have to deal with these kind of questions that we just discussed for the past hour. And, you know, authentication today is pretty much a commodity. There are tons of great companies that are doing it. And still I see some questions around how to do it, what should I need to do, and, and I see a lot of developers that are trying to do it on themselves and then they are failing because of that. But still, I mean, because it's nice, it's now a commodity, there, there are tons of different services. And, you know, companies today, they want to focus on the go-to-market. Uh, they want to get to market faster. And that's, that's why uh, they are trying to build, when you think about build, build versus buy, authentication is the first one to basically buy. What we took we, what we took is a different approach uh, because yeah, authentication is very important, but when you talk about B2B companies, it's a bit different because authentication is good and you wanna make sure that your user is safe, but there are tons of requirements from the end user side, from the companies that you are selling to, in terms of different experiences that you wanna have with the product and mostly around self-serviness that brings it to more than just authentication. Okay, for example, uh, we have one customer that wants MFA multi-factor to be forced on all, all his uh, accounts and all his users, and the other one doesn't want it, and one organization requires 
uh, that kind of uh, password policy and the other, the other one wants a different kind of password policy and one organization requires social SSO and the other one requires Okta and the third one requires OpenID Connect and then you have so many stuff to go and, and walk around it. So what we took upon ourselves is to provide uh, and to enable developers to integrate such security features around authentication enterprises, so social SSO, MFA, the entire user management capabilities, password complexity, and, and all of this. And we try to keep it to as much as five lines of code, and I swear it's five lines of code. You can check our <laughs> website. Yeah, 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 you can check our website. Uh, later, the React the React integration is five lines of code. With Angular, we had to write a little bit more, but that's okay. And the idea is that we think about the end user, okay? So all of the authentication libraries, companies nowadays, they think about the infrastructure. We took upon ourselves to think about the end users, okay? And to provide the end users of the company, the great companies that we are, we are, we are serving, with a great self-service approach to enable them to, you know, basically use all of these features and to customize them to their needs. For example, we provide user management admin portal where the end user, for example, the organization that our company, that like our customer sells to, uh, can invite users, provide them with roles, onboard is SSO, see audit logs, onboard machine-to-machine tokens, Etc. Etc. Because we had so many times about the pain that was involved in implementing SSO and onboarding SSO and and inviting a user and build the perfect profile and build the perfect MFA onboarding dialogues and build the perfect password complexity dialogue. Uh, so we give this extra layer of we call it the full stack APIs, where basically it all starts with the login, but the login is only the start. It comes with a perfect admin portal on top of that to serve basically the end users of the companies that we are serving. Uh, and that's basically what's what's special about Frontend. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was thinking about, about a week ago, I remember thinking about, um, you know, there was a, a SQL injection attack that hit some website a while back. And they ended up downloading their entire database. So hackers ended up downloading. So for just a, a really quick thing on SQL injection attack, the way it works is, is you know, SQL is code, but when you make a SQL query, you know, you typically pass, it's interpreted. So you pass your code as a string over to the SQL server and that server executes that code and then passes you back the result. And because it's a string, there's nothing to stop you from just using basic string operations, like things we all learned in high school, like take this string, add it to that string. But the problem is those strings, when they're being constructed, you know, if there's user input that's deciding the content of that string, then someone can end up basically adding a string, like, like maybe they make their username, you know, something that closes a comment or, or some, something that tells SQL that everything that just happened was a comment and my actual username is, you know, delete the database or something like that. And if you just pass that straight to the server, you lose everything. So, so there was a SQL injection attack where someone was able to download the entire contents of the database. And that is where auditing would be really important, right? So, so I mean, also, you know, having 
not not making that error is important. But but even if you if you have a developer who makes that error, you're going to see you know 40 gigabytes of egress, or hopefully a lot less than that. But you're going to see a high velocity, a lot of egress when someone makes a single query for the entire database, and you can catch that. And you know, downloading 40 gigabytes doesn't happen that quickly. So you could catch that and and hopefully, you know, maybe the person only gets 10% of the database, right? And so so having audit logs is really, really important. And and it's another thing, there's an even stronger incentive not to do it, right? So like it's like people don't want to concern themselves with login. They really don't want to concern themselves with auditing the login. Like it's it's another layer that is even further away from you know, building the, you know, social media website you want to build. Right. And so, yeah, I think, I think adding auditing is, is a really nice add on. Yeah. You know, you know what we say about auditing. So when, when we use audit logs, when something really goes wrong, that's when we use audit logs yep. because normally, I mean, it just sits there, but when something happened, you start going over the audit logs to see who changed what, how the heck, I mean, someone is being able to log in and touch this uh, configuration. And who changed this configuration? We saw it a lot uh, over the previous, you know, years with Checkpoint where uh, everything was, you know, had to be audited for who changed to allow any, any traffic through the firewall. And yeah, audits for login are pretty necessities, but that's only the start because you want to make sure that you audit any change of configuration that is being made because that's a critical necessity as well, especially for cybersecurity companies, especially for highly regulated companies. Okay, audit logs is like the essence of the business and you want to make sure that you are 100% compliant with all of these changes because when when something goes wrong you better have, you better have this information uh, in hand yeah yeah totally makes sense and and yeah as soon as you have an audit log or really a log of any form then you can start doing monitoring either manual monitoring automated monitoring and and you you want to have that stuff early it's much harder to build it in later totally totally yeah and usually that's what you know <sighs> Out of this uh, position in Frontech, I had a privilege of uh, of talking with a lot of CDOs, VPRNDs, you know, in multiple roles, roles, and even talking with several CISOs. And you know, the CISOs' perspective is always the one that fascinates me the most because I've met some CISOs that told me I rather sometimes. Pick, you know, uh, in, in larger companies with CISOs, with acting CISOs, they have to review any product that the company is using. And some, and I've heard several times that CISOs would say, I rather use the product which is not the best one, but is covering, you know, my checklist because then I can sleep well at night. Uh, and we see a lot of companies, you know, facing these because it's like it's like a kind of a struggle because on one hand, you want to make sure that you develop the product because product is God and the product is what that's going to bring you into these meetings. But on the other hand, if you don't develop these necessities, so you won't pass the CISA certification. So, you you know, and startups, you don't know what, what to focus on. That's a real struggle for a lot of companies I talk with. 
Yeah, that makes sense. What's the relationship between, actually, wait, uh, before I ask that question, another question, how does this work on mobile? So, you know, we talked a lot about web and with web, it's easy because you can send the person to Google, but if you're an app, you know, how can a person then just be typing their password to Google while it's in the middle of an app or how, how, how does front egg handle that? So what I always say is that ours is an hour. So there are several today with the electron apps, uh, you hardly see any difference between between web application and electron application. So you get pretty much the same experience. Frontend handles it through, uh, we are web uh, native, but for the mobile applications, we handle it through a rich set of uh, REST APIs that basically take care of this uh, OAuth and, and access tokens and refresh tokens. And that's the that's the idea. Yeah, MFA is a different issue in in a mobile application because you get it from a different place. But yeah, it's it's tot- like it's different world. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the the other the other thing was um, uh, there's now like uh, something I'm seeing becoming more popular this this idea of this like headless CMS, which is basically as I understand it, it's kind of a layer that sits in between the you know application backend and the database and so it'll do things like generate thumbnails for all your images it has a ui for adding more content manually and so it also handles a lot of user data and so it, how does front egg relate to this headless cms phenomena is it is it compatible with that is it sort of a take on that or what is there a relationship there at all yeah, I have to say that you know, I didn't cover so much of headless CMS. Uh, you know, there, there is no good answer because I, I have to deep dive, like I have to dig deeper into it. We currently do not cover it, you know, for the sake of uh, this recording. So I think this one can be cropped. Sure, sure, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I also am just learning about it, and so. Uh... Yeah, today there is the rise of Jamstack. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So Jamstack goes a little bit with the headless. Uh, this is what I ro- uh, read about. Jamstack is more for the web, but I've seen some headless CMS uh, using Jamstack. We still didn't go into uh, this world. So, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. So what about FrontEgg as a, as a company? You know, what is a, a day like at FrontEgg? What's something you do that's kind of unique? that really kind of makes makes working at front egg different than working at you know another startup or or another another big company or something like that and then also you know after talking about that it'd be good to see you know, are you guys hiring and and is it sort of interns full time so so what does that that whole thing look like yeah sure so uh, I have to say that this team in front of, you know they are the second family here Looking at these two years and thinking about the team that we built uh, is amazing. And the company is really growing. We, we, we are around 25 uh, employees, 20, 22 of them in Israel, uh, in Tel Aviv. Great teams splitting up to full stack teams with amazing collaboration between the teams. We have a very lively WhatsApp and Slack channels where everyone is giving it to the to the CTO for choosing JavaScript as the <laughs> uh, as the preferred language, and we have guys that wait. So I, okay, I have to interject here. Why not TypeScript? 
Yeah, yeah, obviously we we are using TypeScript. Everything is oh, okay, okay. Yeah, everything is TypeScript, but we have several uh, .NET and Java gurus are sticking up to the CTO. Why did you choose TypeScript? And let's do, <laughs> okay. Let's do stuff in Java, and then we have the the, the JavaScript guys who are saying, yeah, I'm gonna. No, JavaScript is the best. And then, yeah, most of the jokes goes around it. Uh, and it's really like a great atmosphere and funny atmosphere to walk in. And it's like a great feeling of one team who wants to change the life of developers building this generic stuff and providing the great service for developers. And yeah, we are hiring. We are hiring several full-stack developers full-time in Tel Aviv. We are looking for products as well and product marketing so yeah that's that's usually a day in front egg which concludes usually on thursday with a bunch of ice cream and whiskeys to conclude the week oh nice yeah the uh yeah i love having an outlet for for funny memes i remember we uh, i used to work on on mapreduce a long time ago i used to i was at google and i was working on mapreduce and um you know, we would write everything in, you know, C and C++. And at one point, somebody put this picture up in the office of someone. It was one of these kind of America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent type shows. And it was somebody who could shoot a bow and arrow and hit a bullseye with their foot. And that's kind of what coding in C++ really felt like. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think I think maybe in Java, it would be the same thing, except much longer. <laughs> like you would have to have a a bow factory and a foot factory and then a you know bullseye factory and <laughs> yeah so w- whenever whenever something doesn't go well I, it would never happen in Java I say yeah yeah it would and then when something didn't work in Java well because we have SDKs in Java as well so when something didn't work ah yeah it would never happen in JavaScript or in TypeScript and then yeah all the offices like uh, around it so it's pretty funny. Cool. That's awesome. And so, so there are, you said you're looking for like, you know, product marketing and these type of roles and just to recap, so are there internship or is it full-time only or both or what's the deal there? So we are currently looking for full-time. Uh, we have a lot of our shoulders uh, on our shoulders and we want to get uh, as much done as possible. So we are currently looking for full-times, both on the R&D for uh, full-stack development, our main stack is Node.js TypeScript and uh, React TypeScript uh, for the front end. Uh, we have several because we are we are a developer platform, so we have several Angular, Vue, Python, you know, bunch of SDKs. But the main like ninety percent, eighty five percent would be around React and JavaScript. And on the product marketing and product roles, yeah, it's like moving these ideas forward and support R&D and the entire company uh, for building up this uh, this uh, great platform. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing we didn't cover, I want to go back to, just to wrap this up, to conclude it, is uh, what are your offerings, product offerings? And so, you know, just to give a bit of background here, you know, we have two kind of main sort of, of, of factions of listeners, right? There's folks who are in, in either high school or college or they're post-college or but they are, you know, just getting into the industry. They're becoming professional developers. And so what do you have for them, let's say hobbyists? And and then also what do you have for, you know, um, enterprise customers? And, and how would people uh, get started in, in either of those roles? Yeah, so first of all, because we believe in product-led growth, 
Uh, we believe in bottom-up, so that means that we have a very generous freemium plan and a very active Slack community. So basically, what you get from Frontag is out-of-the-box, fully customizable login box and admin portal, which covers basically everything you need around authentication and single sign-on. And that includes all the social logins, login with Google, login with GitHub, profile management, etc., etc., SSOs. And basically for the enterprise customers, we have an offering which is based on audit logs and a fully customizable organization splits. So that means that if you are integrating Frontag, basically you provide your customers with an ability to, to define their own security policies without you needing to do it for them. That's the PLG motion uh, that we strongly believe in and the self-serviness that we strongly believe in providing your end users with the ability to customize and control everything on their own, on the audit log side, on customized security policy side, onboarding MFA, onboarding enterprise SSO such as Okta and that kind of stuff, and even enjoy. So most most of our offering is, is as a service. Uh, we have uh, dedicated deployments, which are available on our enterprise plan as well which can be covered as hand charts or Docker Compose. So that depends, like most of our, you know, we call it a garage-based uh, startups will start with either our freemium plan or with our startup program. And then they will evolve to what we call a, a plan which is more sophisticated, which includes the audit logs and all the other uh, advanced uh, capabilities as well. Cool, that makes sense. So, So if you're listening to this and you're building... You know, your first web app or or you are prototyping something and you want to send it to a friend and it's a web or, or a mobile app or even an electron desktop app you know you can you can use front egg it's uh totally free to use you know uh to to, to get started with but then you know, let's say your app really takes off you hit the front page of the new york times or something and now all of a sudden everyone's hitting your site and you really need to start keeping track you have attackers that are attacking your site then you can upgrade to the to the premium plan without having to you know rewrite the whole API or anything like that and get all those extra features that become really important as you scale. That's correct. Yeah, and and usually we don't limit anything. You know, to get started, you know, like everything is open, and then we we just you know we make sure that you have everything that you need before we start com- like talking about uh, commercial side of business. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that parallels a lot of the you know the folks that we've talked to. I think it's a really really good business model. Yeah, I think the magic there. We talked about this in prior shows, but but this always fascinates me. So I'll bring it up again. Is the the magic is kind of figuring out where to draw the line. I think for this particular product, you know, drawing the line at the audit logs and all of that, I think is very very natural and it fits nicely uh, because at the end of the day, like it's a it's a uh, you're providing a valuable service and, and at some point you need to charge. And, and I think, yeah, I think that's the right place to be because by that time, somebody has gotten, you know, so much value out of it that, that I think that they would be happy to, you know, contribute back. Yeah, I agree. Most of the time it would be around the audit logs and the enterprise SSO, which means that you're probably selling to enterprises. But yeah, I mean, you know, we are talking with so many founders and around, you know, the third or the fourth year of your business, you're probably after 10 different versions 
of pricing if you're really good at it. So, you know, the, the pricing is the one thing that, you know, for me as an engineer, it's so hard to get it right. And there are so many experts and there are so many advisors, especially for a sophisticated platform like, like ours. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So, yeah, we covered a lot of really good. We co covered technical, we covered product, we covered uh, front end as a company. I definitely encourage folks to check it out. The strongest encouragement from both of us is to not build your own login. Don't do it. I actually am guilty of this. Uh, many, many years ago, I made a trivia app. Actually, if, if people are, have, have gone through the archives, if they're new listeners, you've probably seen this episode where I talked about it. And yeah, I actually just passed the token as a query parameter. And, <laughs> and when I was when I was sending the app to some uh, the website to somebody to try out, all of a sudden they were me. And like I sent it to someone to try out, and all of a sudden my score started going up, and I couldn't really figure it out. And and so uh, yeah, thankfully you know it wasn't I wasn't you know making a bank app or anything like that. But yeah, I mean I to totally flubbed that and. And uh, you, know, you really don't want to be playing around with people's passwords. People did, you know, put in passwords to my trivia app that, you know, that they've used in their bank. And, you know, I, I didn't leak the password or anything, but but still, I mean, that I, when I kind of uh, realized what was going on, it made me very nervous thinking about passwords. So, so don't make the same mistake. You know, it sounds like uh, FrontEgg is a really awesome service. I'm going to check it out. I actually have, I'm always kicking around new projects. So I have one... Um, thinking about now. I'm going to try front egg with it and we'll see how it goes. But uh, thank you so much, Aviad, for coming on the show. We learned a ton. Um, I love episodes like this. I personally learned a lot. And you know, I'm sure listeners learned a lot too. And, and, and you know, folks can feel free to go to the show notes where we have an entire transcript of the show. You know, our producers uh, will transcribe the entire show, which is, which is awesome. So if there's any keywords, anything you didn't understand, you can go through that and then you know, kind of Google anything that I wasn't totally clear, but but I think Avia did a, you did an amazing job of uh, really breaking it down for us, and 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 thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks, Jason, for having me. Thank you, guys. Cool, and thanks to all the listeners. Yeah, we've been doing two shows a month for a few months, as you may have noticed. If you're a Patreon subscriber, um, you know, I send a special thank you to to all of you folks for for continuing to support us. Yeah, definitely. We'll 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 post um, Aviad's uh, you know Twitter and other stuff in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to him directly, we'll provide a way to do that. Uh, we'll also have links to Front Egg, so you can check that out. And everyone have a great couple of weeks, and we'll we'll see you later on in the month. Music by Eric Barndollar. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution to uh, Patrick and I and share alike in kind.